Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And though I am currently on the road at the moment, we want to make sure that everyone is up to date regarding the different types of camping available around our home of the Gunnison Valley of Colorado and where those different types of camping are permitted. So we've included a link to an article in the show notes of this episode that details all of that. So please go check out that article so that we can all keep doing our part to be good stewards of the areas around Gunnison and Crested Butte. Okay, today we have Sanjay Rawal back on our Off the Couch podcast to talk about his latest film project, which is about one of the most dominant American female roadrunners of the 1970s, Patty Catalano Dillon, and how being coached by Patty has caused Sanjay to completely overhaul how he trains and also shown him why we all might benefit by remembering to run easy. It is always a real pleasure to catch up with Sanjay, and I always learn a lot, so I will link to all of our previous conversations in the show notes to this episode. And with that, let's get to it. Well, Sanjay, welcome back to Off the Couch. How are you today, and where are you today? It's interesting, Jonathan. First of all, great to reconnect. I think we spoke at the beginning of summer 2020, and I was just getting ready to release a film about Native American food sovereignty called Gather. Yep. And I was mentioning to you offline that I feel kind of guilty that my 2020 was exceptionally productive. And I, and I say that because I, I, I live in, you know, in, in Queens, New York City, specifically in a neighborhood that was like the global epicenter outside of Wuhan, China for COVID in March and April of last year. But I don't even have any pets. So like nothing is dependent on me for like its life or lifestyle or anything. I don't have to make any decisions with a partner or with with family. I mean, obviously, I've got elderly parents, but like they they got wise to everything pretty quickly. And Gather was released last September. We figured it would just be for a niche audience, but it kind of exploded. And uh, now, you know, it's it's getting prepped to launch again on Netflix in November. Let's talk about Gather just for, um, you know, a little bit here. So yeah, you and I recorded that one we put over on our Blister podcast, a conversation about that. Remind folks, just talk a little bit about that film. And then I'd be curious to just hear a bit more about like the reception of the film and what's kind of happened in the wake of it. You know, there's 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 two parts to, to that answer. First of all, you know, you remember my film in 2018, 3100, when yeah. become where we had another off-the-couch uh, guest, Sean Martin, as one of our co-stars. And it was looking at running as an aspect of indigenous culture and spirituality, as opposed to just sport or competition or physical fitness. Gather is looking similarly at the relationship between indigenous people and the environment, but looking specifically at the relationship through food with Mother Earth. Uh, obviously, we don't photosynthesize. 
our relationship with our environment is completely dependent on calories pretty much you know that are that at one point were were grown on earth you know either plant based or or animals who who ate plants and that sort of reliance on an environment created or came from a very deep spiritual worldview and just like running you know connects us from a spiritual standpoint to Mother Earth, obviously food does as well if, if you're conscious about it. So long way of saying, gathers about Native American food sovereignty. We followed a bunch of great characters, including an Apache chef named Nephi Craig. As he was trying to start a completely healthy Apache-based cuisine restaurant in eastern Arizona in an area that was decimated by colonization the ongoing occupation of the U.S. military until the 1920s, and now suffers from a whole host of ramifications from kids being separated from their their families, boarding schools, the conscious destruction of culture, meaning the conscious destruction of uh, the indigenous relationship with Mother Earth. Then talk about, again, just the kind of after effects of the film. Um, you said you thought this was going to be somewhat small in terms of its reception and it reached a much bigger audience than you were anticipating. I'm just curious if you have sort of seen some, I don't know, unexpected consequences of this film getting out there. Well, yeah. I mean, we, we spoke just a few weeks after George Floyd was murdered in 2020 yeah. to talk about Gather. And you know, we kind of hinted at the at the the ramifications of people beginning to understand the structural issues of race in this country. It's undeniable. I mean, it's in the Constitution that African Americans, you know, weren't considered more than three fifths of human beings as it as pertains to to voting right to to voting counts to census counts, and they were for a large part in the South property. And you know, our film Gather really builds upon the notion that Native Americans weren't worth anything to this economy. They were worth their their absence was worth something though, because the early economy pre-industrial revolution relied on their land. I mean, that was the big push west. It was clearing natives from their homelands and their home sites so that we could occupy them largely in those days for farming. I mean, and grazing and, and ranching, I mean, there's no industrial revolution then. And so after the murder of George Floyd, you know, through the summer, a lot of kids began to realize that there is another side to that coin of race. Like if African Americans are on one side of that coin, Native Americans are the obverse and the reverse of that coin. And so by September, you know, just on a lighter note, we'd all begun to run out of uh, streaming options, right? Like we started watching like Turkish soap operas and stuff. And that's kind of when we launched on on Apple and Amazon for like, you know, $5 rentals. And people started watching. And by September, October, a lot of theatrical viewings had been ported online, meaning You'd sign up through your local theater to watch a movie at like 7 p.m. on Friday and you'd get a ticket. And instead of going to the theater, you'd watch it live streamed into your living room. So instead of opening the film in 60 or 70 cities and doing panels in 60 or 70 cities, 
which we did for 3100 Run and Become. It was great, but it was exhausting. We did 400 in three months with the cast of Gather. Really, I, I was just in my in my home office in my living room for for most of those screenings and Q and As, and the film reached an audience that I would have never expected. It was it was mainly it wasn't even just people in in, in the food system. It was you know a lot of like you know late teens people in their late teens and twenties and early thirties just trying to um, get a better frame of reference for their existence and participation in this democracy. That's really cool. Another thing I wanted to catch up with you about was your own running, which is something that we have talked about on a previous Off the Couch episode. Um, but this has been a while now, and I found myself, I think back a lot, actually, to that conversation you and I had, perhaps especially because I've actually been running quite a bit. This is the silver lining of when I blow myself up in a mountain bike accident like I did eight weeks ago. It means that I start running a lot more than when I'm also trying to both get out and you know mountain bike on some days, but also still squeeze in some running. So I feel like this, you know, for the off the couch audience, the audience should probably root for me wrecking more frequently on a mountain bike so that I just run more, right? Anyway, but I've been thinking a lot about mostly what I think is maybe safe to call a kind of mental approach or a kind of mental recalibration to, well, running hard and running fast. And if any of that resonates or gives you enough of a setup, I will then stop putting words in your mouth and would ask you to talk a little bit about what you were thinking about then and sort of how it's gone. Well, I, I, I kind of teased it in the, in the last running conversation that we had, but my, my next movie is um, a fictional movie, a narrative movie based on a true story. And that's the story of my running coach, Patty Dillon, who ran in the late 70s and early 80s under one of her married names, Patty Catalano. Um, she was born to a Native American woman and an Irish Catholic father in a suburb of Boston, a working class suburb, Quincy, and grew up destitute, poor you know, with food on the table, but completely marginalized. And, you know, Catholic school taught her to have a very low self-worth. And by the, by her early 20s, she had kind of a dead-end um, set of aspirations, basically no aspirations. Took up running on a lark at the age of 23 because she couldn't really figure out what activities to do to make her feel good about herself. And at the end of a seven-mile run around a local cemetery, because she was really too embarrassed to even run on the street, she just had this like soul-opening epiphany where she she didn't cry; she she sobbed, she wept from like the seat of her soul, and it was the first time she realized where she was doing something. I mean, imagine this: first time at the age of twenty-three, she was doing something where nobody was telling her what to do, how to do it, how to feel, when to do it, where to do it. And it was so cathartic that she vowed to do it again. But after the seven-mile run, she couldn't walk for, for two weeks. Um, but she got better and within four months was kind of cajoled by a bunch of cute boys, in her words, to, to run a local marathon in which she finished first in a time of 2.53 which obviously it's great for 2021, but 
you know, it's like the women's Boston Marathon winner in 1976 when she ran this kind of like regional race. I think the women's Boston Marathon winner was 248. And so Patty runs 253. Um, and that just created a, a whole host of opportunities. At the same time, you know, she, she ended up becoming Nike's first female sponsored athlete. She was third in Boston, or second in Boston, three years in a row, 79, 80, 81. But this was a time when women didn't have an event in the Olympics longer than 1,500 meters. It wasn't until 1984 that there was, um, you know, a 5K and, and a marathon for the women in the Olympics. And so there wasn't much opportunity for Patty to really make a name for herself um, globally. Uh, again, she was Nike's first female-sponsored athlete, but second place in these races didn't mean anything. Now, if, if I said I was second place in New York City, I, I, I'd, I'd be a hero. Like, you know, you, you go like, dude, you're one of the best runners anywhere. But second place back then, particularly for a woman, meant nothing. So this is a long way to say that Patty's coaching methods come from a different era. They they come out of the school of, of Billy Squires, who... You know, who, who was Bill Rogers' coach, you know, who won uh, Boston a, a bunch of times, won New York, I think, four times as well, um, ran the 76 Olympic marathon. And that came out of Arthur Lydiard, an Australian coach that basically taught people, you know, you have to run slower to run faster. You have to run more miles slower to be able to run less miles faster. And it requires a totally different ethos. And that's the kind of ethos that I've really been exploring when running because, you know, this style of, of training, as ultra marathoners know, is just living exhausted all the time and trying to have a goal that's very far down the road and that, you know, daily times, daily workouts don't mean anything. So there has to be some sort of like deep level of satisfaction. Otherwise, the grind is just too much. I know you just said, you know, you live in Queens. We had a pandemic. I'm curious how much running you have been able to do yourself and if like your plans got pretty disrupted just given our societal logistics or whatever in terms of sort of training the way that you just described. Well, you know, I, I have a really difficult time staying focused without a race in mind. And, you know, Boston got pushed from April to September, then got canceled. The California International Marathon, you know, for in, in December 2020, wasn't canceled, I think, until October. And, you know, I, I, the, there's a, a kind of a, a, a um, term in running about how or having a race on, on the schedule keeps the mind focused and it keeps the mind motivated. And we all know that like, if you're just trying to, to, to do a run streak, if you're just trying to run a few miles a day or just you know, check off a box, it's really easy, at least for people like me who are kind of lazy, it's really easy to, to skip a day, to skip a few days and for the, the habit to like, you know, hit, a, hit a dead end. Um, and, and that's what I struggled with last year. It was really like more motivational issues than anything else. I, I did run regularly. I was doing, you know, anywhere between 50 and 65 miles a week through in a couple larger volume weeks, but really found that sort of really productive training pointless because it, it feels like you do it forever. 
Um, but that said, this year kind of started with a bang. You know, all the marathons were back on. They were announced pretty early and kind of got on the training program under Patty. We had, we're in an interesting year because of the, the, the Tokyo Olympics, where you get a lot more content from great runners through social media, through YouTube. They're posting all their workouts. And you can really see which folks are running happy and which ones are putting so much pressure on themselves and creating such a ball of anxiety around their daily training and therefore, you know, are probably going to crash land at the Olympics. <laughs> okay, so let's assume someone is uh, scrolling through social media. Talk a little bit more specifically about what you see or what are some of the signs of a runner that is, quote unquote, running happy. You know, I, I, I see this from, from pro runner friends and, and you know, obviously from, from Patty that, and, and, and Elliot Kipchoge is very, very kind of blatantly frank about this. You know, that it seems like the runners who run happy are trying to have a number of B plus workouts, like 10 to 12 B plus workouts rather than three to four A workouts. And, you know, fo folks who've trained for anything, you know, at a high level will get a sense of what that means. But, um, you know, it's like you might have a, in, in your last training block, you might have like, you know, three or four killer workouts where you're trying to hit certain splits, you're trying to do a certain routine in a certain time um, within a certain effort. And so many people lay their best efforts out in training and don't really save enough in the tank for the race. Elliot Kipchoge, for example, says that he doesn't run at more than 80% of his capacity um, in his workouts. And his workouts are hard. But like, if you've watched any of his videos, like when, they're, when he's doing a track workout, he's not leading. He's in a pack of 25, and he might be like 21st, 22nd, 23rd. And you know, our American viewpoint is like to hammer all these workouts, to like to be at the front, to push, to pass, and to kind of, you know, feel a deep sense of accomplishment after those workouts. Whereas, you know, the Kenyans, for example, they don't really care about how well they do a workout. You know, they don't care if in the pack they're running in, if, they, if they've got a, to, to be in the lead. You know, it's this idea of staying within yourself, learning to run within yourself and learning to, to save a little bit for your final effort. And I'm, I, I watch a bunch of, you know, the, the American athletes and European athletes, you know, training videos online. And you can see the ones who are really, really frustrated when they don't like smash their workouts. And you can see like there's, there's a, a, an incredible woman who runs for Northern Arizona elite. She won the U.S. Women's Olympic trials, trials, Alephine Tuliamuk. And, you know, she, you know, took the pandemic off. I mean, it's as people might remember the Olympic marathon trials were, I think, in February 2020. So she she was chosen for the Olympics, you know, before the whole world got shut down. And so she and her husband decided to have a baby. And I, I believe she gave birth in December or January. 
And so she's had to get kind of on the Olympic training cycle, you know, having given birth. And I think for her, that meant spending, you know, weeks just working on, on, on rebuilding her pelvic floor, just deep core exercises. And she's been posting her workouts and, you know, she's posted that like, you know, those first few workouts she did were, were just three or four miles and they were shockingly slow. I mean, she couldn't, you know, do 800 meters at the pace that she did. She ran her Olympic marathon trials. But it's just this like patience and happiness and, and knowing that if you just keep going, you'll peak when you need to peak. And I think that's the, the crux. It's like, do we want to peak in a workout or do we want to peak in a race? And like, what, what's the mindset that you need to go like, you know, I don't really care how this workout went because it's not a time that's going to define me. You know, it's the effort that defines me. And I just have to have trust in my coach and in the system that I will be ready to peak on race day. Okay. So for you personally, as you are, and maybe you don't accept this characterization, so push back if you want, but it sounds then like a big part of this here is basically getting people to sort of chill out a bit. That's the technical term, chill out a bit in their workouts. And, you know, there are some ways we can, in a, in a way, throttle. And that's the word I'm not sure you would like. I'm thinking about like whether it's through specifically, you know, watching a heart rate monitor or looking at your watch, right? And just saying, I'm not going to let myself get up to a certain you know, heartbeats per minute, or whether you're looking at if you're knocking out or ticking off more miles, it's like, I can't, I actually don't want to start coming in at a mile time or an average mile time, you know, that's this low. How do you personally try to keep this, again, a word I'm not sure you're going to like, but keep this kind of throttled or throttle yourself a bit? I mean, it's, it's a great question, particularly for Americans, because most of us, you know, like the have that, like, like the 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 threshold of expertise of any coaching that we've gotten is really high school, and some people might have gotten some college coaching, but not that many folks who are out there grinding have gotten like world class coaching. And I'm 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 lucky that I'm 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 getting that now from from Patty, and you see the difference. And, you know, it's like most people are really, really embarrassed to have um, a run on Strava that might be like, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 minutes per mile pace. Like easy means easy. You know, people really want to show off every single workout. They, they want their easy runs to look faster than they should. And so that that's the first thing. It's like if you're measuring your runs, like how are you measuring it? You know, you're measuring it, like you said, by keeping your heart rate under a certain level. And if that translates to an ultra slow pace on that day, are you okay with it? Most of us have a hard time, like, you know, posting something super easy or when we're wrecked on Strava. We always have to say like, you know, felt wrecked, don't know what was going on. And maybe that was part of the program. Maybe part of the program is just running ultra slow. 
there's kind of a, a famous story, and you know your bolder listeners might already know it, but Aussie champ and actually former world record holder Rob De Costella used to lead you know a, a lot of slow runs you know up on the trails in, in Boulder, and slow meant slow, like slow meant ten minute and thirty second mile pace, eleven minute per mile pace, and these are guys that are at like. 449, 451 for an entire marathon. And so they're out there doing those. And, you know, one time this, this, this visitor came and he just kept wanting to push the pace and he kept grinding and grinding and, you know, waiting for the group like hundreds of yards ahead and, you know, really just shaking his head at how slow they were. And, you know, lo and behold, one day, you know, they started at a 10 minute pace and by the end, of their eight, nine, ten mile run, they were down to four thirty, four forty pace, and that particular visitor had never joined one of those runs again. Um, but I have a friend who used to to, to quote train with with Dicastella Dica in in Australia, but only on his easy days because you know Rob was doing the nine thirty, ten thirty, eleven minute per mile pace. And this is at a time when you're not like looking for kudos on Strava and you, you're not going like, oh my God, like people gave me kudos when I did like 10 miles at, you know, 100% effort. And then the next day, like when I'm wrecked and I'm doing 10 miles at like a zillion mile per minute pace, I'm only getting like 10% of the kudos. Um, I, I think that, that, that boils down to the crux of it. Like who are, who are we comparing ourselves to? And do we have the the patience to just go like easy means easy hard means hard and even even mason furlick who just qualified for the the u.s men's steeplechase team he said that his training changed dramatically when he reduced the number of workouts he would hard workouts to two per eight days rather than three per seven days and so easy doesn't translate to miles or pace Easy just becomes time on feet. I mean, la- lastly, Jerry Schumacher, the coach of the Bowerman Track Club, he says that the heart for endurance endurance running or endurance exercise, the, the heart doesn't know what your pace is. Um, the, the heart only knows how much time it's been beating for. And that's where the gains are. So he tells his women run, run, runners, for example, that he doesn't care what their overall mileage is per week. He's going to take the number of hours they've run and, you know, and, and divide that by eight minutes per mile. So you could run 12 hours and you could really be pushing and you could be doing, you know, 640 miles, which is 108 miles per week. But he's going to say like, no, you know, it's like I'm going to, instead of doing 12 times nine miles per hour, I'm going to be doing 12 times 7.5 miles per hour, which is eight minute miles. And so in my mind, you've only done 90 Jerry miles. Yep. That's that, really interesting. You never see a high school coach or even college coaches with that. It's only the pro coaches that are doing things that seem so antithetical to the way we're coached from an early age in America. <laughs> okay. So why do you think that is? And do you still feel like this is a very misunderstood component like for a lot of runners out there? 
the whole easy needs to be easy and let hard be hard, but stop. And I, I am so guilty of this, like playing around in the middle ground. You know, I'm not good at running slow. And so I start running faster and then I get tired pretty quick. And then I just kind of the wheels fall off. And it's kind of a catastrophe, to be honest. <laughs> like it, it doesn't make any sense. And hearing you talk, it's like, I probably need to reevaluate and redo some things here, right? Like it's, I'm always just curious, like certain ideas start to develop momentum at a given point in time, but I'm curious if you have thoughts about why this particular idea isn't already better understood. You know, I, I would guess that at some point in the eighties, people really started believing the mantra, no pain, no gain. And it really filtered into high school athletics, and you know when I was when I was running in the '90s, you know I, I had a, a, a top high school times in California, which then had like 30 million people living in it. But we were hammering workouts, like you know at least three workouts a week, including the races, were you know 90 to 100 percent of effort, which meant that you know we were we weren't running many miles and. You know, I was doing the 800, but I was also doing the mile and two mile. And, you know, the people that were beating me were, you know, in the, in the two mile at least, you know, they were running 60, 70, 80 miles a week, but they were running and running those miles slow. And, you know, my coach didn't know enough to be able to really, I think, understand why that was better for a young athlete. And I, I think that's one one reason why you see like a lot of young high school boys now breaking four minute miles. When I was running in the early '90s, there hadn't been a, a a male high school runner under four minutes. I think since like 1974, and now it's almost like every year there's a kid. And this year, you know, the 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 shining star is Hobbs Kessler, um, who qualified for. Uh, Olympic trials didn't make it through the semifinals, but his high school record in the 1500 meters of 334 and change is actually faster than the NCAA men's 1500 meter record. And his coach, his, I mean, there's obviously there's a ton of genetics there, but his coach says like, yeah, he's not running that many miles per week. You know, he's not running 100 miles per week, and most of his non-track workouts are all between eight and nine minute miles. And when he and his team like run by a lake, if it's a hot day, they'll stop their workout and they'll go run it. They'll go jump in the lake. Like they are not like training like the prototypical professional. And there's a lot to be said there. I mean, Elliot Kipchoge said that like the day before he's going to have a hard effort, he might be running at, he might be doing his, his runs at 10 minute per mile pace. I mean, this is a guy who's doing, you know, 430s for his marathon, for his 26.2 miles. And there's no pride. He'll go out and he'll put the time in. Because these guys, again, it's like they they know that they're going to be running between 120 and 135 miles per week. And they don't really care if this week was 130 and next year next week was 119 because they're not measuring by miles. They're measuring by hours. If this week was 12 hours, next week is going to be 12 and a half. And however they shake out is fine. Okay. Since you seem to be pretty good at, well, having your finger on the pulse of trends and the like, how controversial would you say what you are spelling out in this conversation is 
among, I don't know, if we were kind of polling, well, I guess a number of quote unquote informed coaches, right? I mean, are you starting to see at this point in time, most folks who should know would agree with everything you're saying here? Or would you think there'd be a significant amount of pushback on this? I, I think this this is one of the issues in, in the U.S. where in all sports, except for, for maybe basketball, although you know we, we could argue that, um, there really isn't a development system where the, the people with the best potential are getting the best coaching. I mean, there's a lot of luck involved, like, you know, Hobbs Kessler, and I'm not an expert in his story, but, you know, it's like he's, he, you know, lived in proximity to, you know, uh, you know, some pros like, like, you know, like um, Mason Furlick, you know, like Nick Willis and, you know, essentially coached by the, one of the, the, the legends of, you know, college coaching up there. And, and he's a high schooler. And, you know, so like sometimes kids get access to great coaching, but for the most part, a lot of us look back, you know, not with any regret, but at like high school and college and go like, yeah, there was a lot of untapped potential. And, you know, maybe part of it was, was technique Part of it was the actual mechanics of um, the activity, but there's definitely something to be said for not having the right right type of environment to let kids learn to enjoy a sport that they might be really really good at. I appreciate checking in with you. It's always fun, and I know that you do need to get going here in a little bit. Let's see. To recap a little bit, you said we have your film Gather coming out on Netflix in November. And then the film on Patty, where are you with that film? That, that film, the script is well, almost finished with the script. Um, an incredible indigenous Canadian actress, Jessica Matten, has signed on to play the lead. And hopefully we'll be able to shoot that in early 2022. Um, you know, fingers crossed everything falls into place. But it's a great story. I'd, I'd encourage people to to look up Patty Dillon, Patty Catalano. She's she's on Instagram as well. Um, she's a great coach, and she coaches people not just at the professional level, but but folks like me that just want to see how much better we can do if we learn how to if we begin to learn how to run, you know, from within and and not really, you know. And, and if, we're, if we're willing to kind of lose all the bad habits that most of us have picked up over the years by reading BuzzFeed lists and, you know, trying to uh, achieve five years worth of work in one training cycle. <laughs> okay. Well, sounds good. Well, I'm actually currently out in Ketchum, Idaho at the moment. And so uh, in honor of this conversation, I am actually going to get back on the mountain bike. Um, I have not been mountain biking much, but I'm going to try to do a nice mix of some mountain biking where hopefully I don't crash. And then I'm going to go run easy on a pretty cool trail network out here. Good. Well, I mean, I'm a little bit concerned about your, your crash, but hopefully <laughs> it won't happen again. Right. But people, people should just know that like the slow runs are when you gather. That's when you can take in the scenery, when you can stop, when you can, you know, take a minute to, 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 you know, 
to take in a vista, stop to meditate, stop to stretch. The the slow runs, you know, have an incredibly important mental and and like even spiritual um, function. And on the deepest level, it's the slow runs where your mitochondria begin to adapt to the load. You know, it's like when you do a really hard anaerobic workout, you know, with the weights, for example, it's like you need the next day or two for the muscles to repair themselves bigger and stronger. You know, like the, the easy days after the hard workouts are when the mitochondria, you know, really begin to adapt to be able to handle the next series of stresses. So easy days are just time on feet and building up the enthusiasm to get through the harder days. I like it. Sanjay, always a pleasure. Um, oh, pleasure is all mine, Jonathan. And uh, it's always fun to check in with you. And uh, so we're going to we're gonna keep this going. And I, I told you this before we recorded this one. Like, we're going to make this a more frequent occurrence. If I, can, uh, if I can twist your arm and, you know, capture you at the right points of time in your schedule. But uh, I always appreciate your perspective and, and kind of your state of the union on the world, too. So uh, appreciate, once again, you sharing all of that with us. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to have friends like you, and I, I kind of sit within all these weird intersections <laughs> of running in life, pro running, ultra distance running. Oh, the 3100 is, uh, is happening oh, it this is. year um, in September, September 5th through October 26th, the world's longest race run around you know, a 0.58 mile loop in Queens. Um, we're, we're trying to get some of the European runners who are on the, ban- the travel ban list um, to get exceptions. But so far, you know, since Asia isn't on the, the, the list of, of, of banned countries, you know, we've got a Mongolian first-timer, a Japanese first-timer, a Taiwanese first-timer. And for those of your, your audience members who, who are in New York City, you know, give us a follow on Instagram at 3100film, 3100FILM. We'll be announcing all the runners shortly, and uh, you know, people should feel free to come and watch the slowest and most enjoyable picnic slash sports event in the world. <laughs> that was an amazing pitch. Amazing. I like it. Well, that's great to hear that that is back on. And uh, yeah, so, um, well, wow. Um, Here's to all the participants of that and everyone helping out with that. And uh, once that goes down, you know, we'll have to definitely check in and uh, get the reports on that. You know, so yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot going on as always with you, Sanjay. And uh, I look forward to our next check-in. Me too. Thanks, Jonathan. (laughs) All right. Take care. Well, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. I want to say thanks to Sanjay for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. Please keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again real soon.